0: Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 440th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most respected and beloved actors of our time. Described by the New York Times as, quote, the thinking man's surrogate and the thinking woman's hunk, close quote, and by the Los Angeles Times as, quote, a pure actor, versatile, dedicated, intelligent, and very good indeed, at home in any medium and any period, close quote. He has done outstanding work over seven different decades on the stage and screens big and small, accumulating a Tony nomination, an Oscar nomination, and eight Emmy nominations, one of which resulted in a win. But he is best known for one role in particular, Jack McCoy, the New York assistant district attorney turned district attorney on NBC's Law & Order. Character he played from 1994 through 2010 and who he returned to playing this year, in addition to also popping up in supporting parts on the Netflix comedy series Grace and Frankie and the Hulu Limited series The Dropout. Sam Waterston. Over the course of our conversation, the 81 year old and I discussed how a guy who dreamed of being a Shakespearean actor and made his name at Joseph Papp's annual New York Shakespeare Festival wound up breaking into screen acting. How playing the parts of several practitioners of the legal profession may have planted the seed in the mind of Dick Cook to cast him as Jack McCoy. How he has managed to keep interesting for audiences and for himself, a character whose consistency and steadiness have been his defining traits over more than 300 episodes, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. All right. Sam, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. And on this one, we always begin truly at the beginning. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living?
1: I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts on November 15th, 1940. And I grew up in a little town outside of Boston called North Andover, Massachusetts. And my Both my parents were teachers, my father and my mother both taught at the same boarding school, Brooks School.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I went there for a year, and then I went to boarding school at another school.
0: And I, I believe, is it correct that your father was actually your first director? Yes, he was. <laughs> he, How did he, that work?
1: Well, it was great. He directed, he, he directed the school plays there. He He had had a a serious amateur's interest in acting himself when he was in college. He was at Oxford and um, he auditioned for a play and he was was, was offered a very small part and he thought it was beneath his dignity. Um, So he turned it down and Emmeline Williams, I don't know if you know who Emmeline Williams is, but he eventually wound up with a knighthood for acting. He took the part instead. My father always used to call that <laughs> joke on himself, but he was directing. Um, you know, all the I was a tot; I was six years old or something, and he, he was directing all the heroes of this boarding school, all the seniors and juniors, and in a production of Jean Anouilh's Antigone, mm-hmm. and he he needed somebody to play. Creon's page, and so he cast me, and uh, I got to stay up late. Uh, w- we were four children, and I had my father exclusively. I was way up past my bedtime, and with all the great figures of Brook School um, around and about.
0: Well, so, I've— uh... No, it's it's very cool. And I but I do I've gathered from from what I've, you know, located just as as prep that as you went along, whether it's at uh, Groton, where I guess I guess that would be elementary school or going into high school. I don't know. Well, it
1: started in the seventh grade and it went through the end of high school.
0: Okay, so it seems, though, that through that, even going off to Yale, it was not you were not at Yale for. Uh, the School of Drama. You were you were enjoying acting, but it was. I guess it seems like it wasn't until you were at Yale that there was sort of a, a literally a moment when you realized that this is what you were meant to to do. Can you recall what that specific moment was?
1: Well, I, yeah, I can. I, um, I, I should say that before then, I was bat- seriously stung, um, and one of the. One of the scalding memories is that uh, I very much wanted to play Cyrano and Cyrano de Bergerac in high school, and I sort of thought that it had been semi-promised to me by <laughs> the, the teacher, and then he gave it to somebody else. And there's nothing like rejection like that to, uh, you know, it it sort of uh, tempers the steel. Uh, so I wanted, I wanted to be an actor um but i didn't realize what it could feel like until i was doing i was in waiting for godot uh, directed by bill francisco who was a teacher at the drama school and he was really exacting and demanding and he had very high expectations of everyone and uh i was playing lucky and uh I hadn't known what to do, and then he and I had spent a couple of afternoons mapping out how this long speech of Lucky's should be performed, and it was divided basically into two parts. The first part was, relatively speaking, relaxed um, and funny, or meant to be funny, and the second half was, uh, was increasingly desperate. So we opened the play, and the Yale Daily News, which was the newspaper at Yale, it gave me a review in which it said that I was too smart for the part, which <laughs> I suppose under ordinary circumstances you would have thought was sort of a back-ended compliment, but it tortured me. I couldn't understand what they were talking about. <laughs> so we got to the last night of the performance, and I was on stage. Lucky's on stage for a three quarters an hour or something before he gets to speak and um, carrying bags around and obeying orders. And uh, all that time I was thinking, what was it? And and I'm not going to, this is my last chance. And I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to do. And just before Pazzo says, speak Peg, I thought I'm never going to get to say this again. And then I thought Lucky's never going to get to speak again. And then I thought I'm never going to get to speak again. And it animated the speech in the most wonderful way. So we got to the end of the funny part, and the audience uh, applauded, interrupted the speech to applaud, thinking it was over. I took a breath, and just the breath shut up the whole audience. And then they listened with increasing intensity until they, they knocked my hat off and I fell to the ground and silenced. And then... There was a long pause, and then they applauded again. And then I had this feeling that you could communicate with an audience by thought, and it's it's never left me, and and it, it's very very addicting. Right along with the applause, it's fun.
0: Now, was that before or after something that I believe happened in your junior year, when like a lot of people you. When abroad, I, I understand that you were almost looking to be convinced not to go further down the path of acting when you went to Paris. What what happened there?
1: Well, I was very badly stung by Waiting for Godot, and I and I also knew that it was uh, just an awful profession to go into. <laughs> so I, I sort of made a vow when I went to France that I wasn't going to have anything to do with show business for that year and see if I could do without it. And that lasted for about three weeks. And then uh, I was in a a kind of school play, and I told myself that that didn't count. But then I ran into a bunch of expatriate Americans who had talked uh, John Berry into teaching a class, and he was himself an expatriate American. And an absolutely fantastic figure and uh, you know everything you would dream of for, for a mentor and very 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 savvy about the theater so i got into his class and that was it and then really when i came home uh, it was all i wanted to do
0: so i uh, you graduate from yale in 62 it seems like within a matter of months you're in new york and i, I wonder um, if you can talk about just the decision to relocate there and then very nearly, at one point, almost relocating to L.A., but never doing that. Why were those two decisions made?
1: Well, I, I, I believed that what I was going into was the theater. My father had refused to have a television in the house all his life, and my experience going to the movies was, you know, going to Saturday matinees of Superman when I was a kid, And then really not seriously going to the movies until I was in France and then seeing a lot of movies, but thinking that the theater was what I was going to do. So New York was the natural destination.
0: And I guess the reason that you'd even contemplated going on to move to L.A. was that initially things were not. Happening as fast as you'd like in New York, or what was the the reason there?
1: I don't know if you've ever compared (laughs) the pay rates in the theater to those in the movies and (laughs) television, but it it had everything to do with making a living. Yeah. Increasingly, as the years went by, people in the theater were more and more interested in the credentials that you brought from the movies and television because it helped sell tickets. So that was another. You know, if you wanted to work in the theater, it's like what Hermione, Hermione Gingold used to say: if you wanted to work in New York, go to London, and if you want to work in London, go to New York, and then they'll ask you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, it seems I guess like the the one of the major essential turning points in your life is you kind of crossing the radar of Joseph Pap. Why? How did how did that happen? Because for for decades you were. Very closely associated with New York Shakespeare Festival, Delacorte Theater, just all of that. I know that was some of the most formative stuff for you, but but how did that begin?
1: And some of the richest stuff that I have ever experienced in the movies or the theater or in television or anywhere else. Uh, mm. But how did it happen in the first place? Mm-hmm. I was cast in the road tour of Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mom Hung You in the Closet and I'm Feeling So Sad by Arthur Kopit. And the person who directed, the, the original director was Jerome Robbins and the man directing the, the road company was Gerald Friedman, who was also the artistic director of the public theater. And he put me in my first Shakespeare play, in New York, uh, playing the second shepherd to Charlie Durning's first shepherd in As You Like It, mm-hmm. so that's how it started. But I, I've always—I don't know where I heard this story, but years and years ago, I heard a story about uh, how, in the old days, a farmer, if the if the dog if the farm dog had too big a litter, um, he would put the puppies that he didn't want in a bag and drown them in the brook. And <laughs> I have always, you know, that's a horrifying story and it sticks with you. <laughs> right. Right? But I've always, always thought that that's what Bernie Gerson and Joe Papp did. They they saved this one puppy from drowning because many, many people come to New York hoping to act. And a lot of them are really, really good. And it's, you know, if you're spared, it's it's really a wonderful piece of luck.
0: Now, do you think you would have been drawn to Shakespeare independent of Joe Papp, or was that just where the work was, that it was, that was what the opportunities were through him? Uh,
1: you, you know, I, I, that's a really good question. And I think that the, uh, I, I think that you should be careful what you wish for, because sometimes you get it. And uh, <laughs> and, and I think that happens probably more often than one thinks I, I wanted to be a Shakespeare actor. I came to New York wanting that. And, you know, I think producers and directors can see your teeth bleeding or whatever the expression is, and it matters.
0: So where screen acting enters the picture, I don't know if this was the first thing, but it sounds like uh, there was, again, maybe a, a literally a moment during the Great Gatsby, where you're Nick Carraway, you're on a movie set with Redford and Mia Farrow, and I guess you realized, hey, I actually like screen acting too.
1: Yes, well, I, I, yeah, I, I didn't know how much I liked it until we were doing a shot of Nick coming up in a dinghy, tying up his boat at a dock, walking up the dock, finding a dead bird, picking it up, and looking out into the distance, and. We did it, I think it was 23 times. And uh, somewhere around the 20th or the 21st, I thought, you know, I I could just go on doing this all day long. I really like this. And,
0: uh, yes. What do you think it was? Because, I mean, there are plenty of actors. You talk to anyone who's worked with Fincher or back in the day, William Wyler, who, people who do a zillion takes, and a lot of them don't like it. But there was what was it about the fact that you could... Do something over and over that you liked.
1: I guess it's probably related to to the fact that when you do a play, you you get to try it again another night and another night and another night. That's part of it, and and another part of it I think is I could probably get out of the dinghy a little bit better. I could probably tie the rope a little better. I could I could walk more smoothly up this dock, and you know, there's always room for improvement.
0: Mm hmm. So I know that it was always sort of overlapping from from there on where you do screen acting, go back to the stage. But I have to ask you about a few of your earlier screen projects, uh, because you've you've been a part of a wide variety of stuff. I mean, Heaven's Gate 1978. This is Chimino coming off of the, I guess, uh, Deer Hunter. Right. And um yep. And I, I I, wonder what your, I mean, this is, at the time, it was sort of considered a complete disaster. It's since been reevaluated quite a lot. Um, but what was your experience there?
1: Well, I forget, I think we were maybe just at the end of the first day and some grip or some member of the crew walked by saying, it's not even lunchtime, we're already five days behind. Oh, jeez. <laughs> And, you know, and we hadn't even been shooting for five days. So so uh, that was basic to the experience of all of us, I think. It, it just took so much longer than anybody expected um, or than it had been budgeted for. And then it became this great saga that, that you're referring to that everybody who studies the movies knows about and, It brought down a studio, and it it had terrifying consequences. Um, But it was a wonderful company of people to be with. And, you know, it wasn't a prison. We were in, (laughs) it was the most beautiful part of Montana. Yeah, so it, it was a horrible and wonderful experience.
0: Yeah. Well, I conversely, I I believe someone who works very fast is Woody Allen, who you've done four movies with. We'll note Interiors in 78, Hannah and Her Sisters in 86, September in 87 and Crimes and Misdemeanors in 89. Why do you think you two clicked? Was there something that uh, about the way he worked that you you really liked?
1: Oh, Yes, but I can't I have no idea why he and I clicked, but I, I I loved working for him. You say he worked very fast, but he also was perfectly willing to come back and shoot things again, which is uh, I mean, and I think he built it into his budget mean, so maybe he maybe that's something that he never stopped doing. But I was in a movie of his called September. I was in the second company of that movie. <laughs> they had already shot, I, I, I think, almost the entire movie uh, with some of the same people in the cast, some, some different people in the cast. And one day, Diane Weiss and I came in and asked how the scene that we had shot the day before I had looked to him. And he said that it was uh, terrible. no. <laughs> No, no director ever says <laughs> anything like that ever. Right. But he said it doesn't matter. I don't know whether it was you or me or all of us, but we'll just shoot it again. <laughs> and that's another thing that no director
0: ever says. So right. Well, the the last movie that I'm going to bring up for for a while is one that is one of my. True favorites, and I know for a lot of people, a lot of people feel this way, and that is from 1984, The Killing Fields, and uh, I think it was Roland Joffe's first movie as a director, right?
1: He had directed for television, but he had never directed a feature.
0: So, just to remind people, or if they if they haven't seen it, you're playing this New York Times reporter Sidney Shanberg opposite his Cambodian assistant, played by. I don't know if I, I hope I pronounce it correctly, Hines Nor, who was uh, and ultimately won the, the Oscar for that. This is a movie that you've called life-changing. I know you got a, a Best Actor Oscar nomination for it, which is a, a tremendous thing, and it's a great movie, but I wonder what made it life-changing for you?
1: Well, people who have seen the movie probably answer that question themselves because the movie really does speak pretty directly to what the experience that we all had making it was like. Uh, it was searing. There were a, a lot of... Heng Nor was not the only Cambodian involved in the movie, and it felt extremely personal to people who were involved. And then we were... The movie was opening in the United States, and I was uh, touring around doing publicity, and I was in Boston. And two women both named Susan, um, came up to me, one of them very tall and the other one almost comically very short, and said, now that you know, what are you going to do about it? And they recruited me to join uh, Refugees International, which they both worked with, and one of them was really the founder of it, um, Sue Morton, and I I was involved with it for 25 years. I still maintain a connection. So I, I became aware of what it, of of refugees and the refugee crisis worldwide and and it you know it's it's current events. It's uh it's what's going on right now.
0: And and Hang Noor uh I guess he had never acted before. Here he is playing something uh, very personal to him, wins the Oscar, and then can you share? I, I mean, it's very sad, but what, what became of him?
1: Well, he was living in uh, Los Angeles, uh, and he was murdered, walking from his garage to his apartment building. As I believe that it, the, the police never got further than the rowdy, young men who had assaulted him. But nobody in the Cambodian community, and and not I either, can really believe that it was just a random act of violence because he stayed very involved in Cambodian affairs, and Cambodian affairs
0: were, to some extent, remain extremely turbulent. Well, for you after that, I, I wonder, it seems like there was... Uh, that's a moment after you get your Oscar nomination, you could potentially maybe have more choices than ever before. Maybe, uh, it's not always the case, but I think it, it's often the case. And it seems like what you, what you ended up doing was going back and doing some very interesting TV, including two projects that on which you played a member of the legal profession. I just want to note, um, the first is in 88, a TV movie, Terrorist on Trial, the United States versus Salim Ajami. And then in 91 for, I believe, two seasons in a TV movie, I'll Fly Away a series from the creators of St. Elsewhere, A Year in the Life, Northern Exposure. Um, I know David Chase was also involved. You won a Golden Globe. But do you think it was the fact that people had seen you or that Dick Wolf specifically had seen you as a, lawyer, maybe particularly in I'll Fly Away, where it's almost like an Atticus Finch type character, a very upstanding guy that made him think of you for Law and Order when you were approached about that? I don't know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I really don't know. Um, But they were two terrific parts. I will say that. And and Mm -hmm. I don't know why people I guess, yes. You're probably right, but I I really can't say for sure. You'd have to ask him.
0: And so when you first heard about Law & Order, I guess it's already in its fifth season. It's 94. There's no audition. There's just what? Dick Wolf calls you out of the blue and and says what?
1: Would you like to play this part?
0: (laughs) And and how how did he describe the part, though?
1: The nicest possible way. (laughs) <laughs> to get a job is to just have somebody call you up and say, please take it. Actually, I think he invited me out to lunch, but I, I, I don't remember the details, but I do remember that there was no audition.
0: And, and do you remember, though, how this this guy, Jack McCoy, was presented to you? Was it for you an immediate? All right. I'm interested. Sign me up. Or or I guess was there was there, uh, you know, what what made you decide to, to go for it? I don't know you know I,
1: life is what happens while you're making other plans i when, <laughs> when the only reason that I agreed to do uh, to do I'll Fly Away was because mm-hmm. I thought that it was just going to be uh, a movie for television and they sort of promised me that it would never become a television series and then when it became a television <laughs> series, everybody professed to be astounded and then it turned out <laughs> to be one of the most wonderful things that I've ever had anything to do with and I think that that's that's true of law and order too i I thought oh I'll do this for a year maybe or something and then another and then another and then another and then pretty soon um, it turned out to be a wonderful thing for my career it kept me out of all kinds of trouble um, <laughs> and and meanwhile uh, the children that my wife and I had produced that we hadn't really considered how we were going to educate them and all that stuff it was just (laughs) such a gigantic help that way too
0: so and you were living in connecticut and this is shooting in new york right so it's not the not the worst thing that better than commuting to la right exactly Now, can you set the scene of what the sort of TV landscape of opportunities looked like in New York at that time and probably for a while into the run of of Law and Order? What was how how significant and and rare was Law and Order as in terms of just being a, a New York production?
1: I don't know if this is exactly true, but it was certainly the impression that I had was that if you were going to be on TV in New York. It had to be on Law & Order, because mm-hmm. there was just nothing else going on. Um, and then time went by, and, and one of the things that Law & Order demonstrated was that you could do a television series in New York with a definite budget and stay within the budget, and all, you could do it. And you could, mm-hmm. have, you could have New York as your backdrop, and you could have the great pool of unbelievably wonderful actors who live in New York because they want to be on the stage and therefore need help making a living mm-hmm. um, and so you could have access to them. And, and, and it really became the café de la Paix of, of show business in New York. Everybody
0: came by. Yeah. Now can you just talk about this, this guy who you again began playing uh twenty eight years ago, I believe, and and are still playing to this day. Jack McCoy, who started out as an ADA, he's now a, a DA, but did, was there any sort of backstory that you were provided by Dick? Did you actually, you know, seek out a real life contemporary to get a get a hold of how you wanted to play him. Just how did he take shape? I, uh, well, John Hurt
1: was one of the wonderful people who was in, uh, who, who was in Heaven's Gate. And he famously said that acting is an act of the imagination and that he did no research about anything. Well, that certainly is not the case for me. I, I, I love it. But I, I agree with him that on the bottom line is that it comes out of you and out of your imagination. So that's where Jack McQuay came from. But I did my research. I read about being a DA in New York, and I met a DA whose, whose attitude I tried to steal. Uh, <laughs> Lock, stock, and barrel. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, if you don't like Jack McCoy, you really have to blame me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, when you joined the show in its fifth season, was it already sort of the the hit that we regarded as today, or, or was it still growing at that point?
1: It, it was not it was not in that awkward first stage of finding its legs. It had found its legs. It knew what it was. It knew how to make it. It had a wonderful, wonderful showrunner named Ed Sharon, who had had a wonderful take on the whole job um, and was himself a really gifted director. And so it was it was getting onto a moving train. It was it was
0: it was delightful. And and can you pinpoint why do you think people over the years increasingly love the show, but also have a very special place for Jack McCoy? What is it about the show and him?
1: I wish I could give you the, the quote. I used to have it pinned up on a bulletin board in Jack McCoy's office by Mark Twain. It goes something like. Always do the right thing. It will uh, dismay your enemies and, and, and amaze your friends. Something like that. Uh, and I think that I think that's kind of what I think that. Well, I thought that was Jack McCoy's motto, and yeah, I think he thought he was fighting on the side of the angels. I think he does. Uh, I think he loved his job. I think he loved the combativeness. Um, still does and you know i think the the idea of the show is that the prosecutors are a tiger on the side of the citizen and i think that has a tremendous appeal
0: mhm now as you and the show you know simultaneously were taking off i imagine that you you know, it's not that you were not a well-known person before, but I think on a network TV show, it's got to over that length of time—the first 16 seasons of the original run—and then obviously it continues to this day. But I guess I wonder: Did your growing profile help you in, uh, in terms of other aspects of your career? I mean, when the, I, I you guys are doing a lot of episodes per season—I forget how many—but did you have opportunities in the off-season that were enhanced because of your? Increased profile from Law & Order? Yeah. I was
1: a producer on a movie that was made during one hiatus, The Journey of August King. I was, uh, and the the best one was the year that our son James was getting married. um, Sort of at the last minute, he and I figured out that there was time between the end of the season of Law and Order and his getting married, that we could just fit in doing Long Day's Journey into Night somewhere if we could only find a theater that was willing to do it. And the reason we were able to find a theater that was willing to do it was uh, because of Law and Order, because the theater could think, well, we'll extend our season and maybe we'll break even and all that stuff. And, And we actually had the satisfaction of erasing their deficit
0: for the year. So (laughs) That's great. Well, I I guess another thing that was happening as the show's initial run was progressing was that uh, elsewhere, not on NBC, obviously, TV was was changing immensely. You have uh, cable and streaming entering the scene, becoming more popular. Uh, And I guess I wonder, did you ever, in some ways, envy their ability, which I know you've personally experienced since then to do a show, you know, without commercials or with more realistic perhaps words and 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 graphic stuff, even shorter seasons is sometimes a nice thing that is not afforded by network television. I guess I just wondered what were your thoughts about those alternative uh, formats of TV as as Law and Order was progressing?
1: When I was an actor starting out in New York, I was on a crosstown bus. And they used to put up quotes from various famous people. And the one that sticks in my mind is I was on the Crosstown bus on 57th Street, and the, the, the quote was from Satchel Page, and it said, keep on running and don't look back because someone may be gaining on you. And, and <laughs> I don't think I really considered the larger perspective of what was happening in show business. I wondered uh, what I was going to do tomorrow. Mm-hmm and um that's usually what ha- happens to me when a when a job comes to an end
0: and and on a literal level right with law and order it's quite a lot of it can be quite a lot of of dialogue that you have you know uh, i mean how what was the shooting schedule like what is the shooting schedule like in terms of you know per episode for law and order how 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 does that work for you
1: well they've given me a very sweet deal for these first 10 episodes of this of this mini season that we just did. Um, Long may it continue. Uh, (laughs) It's, it's not so easy being the ADA and, uh, but that's, that's not the burden that I have to carry.
0: So not since 2007. Was that a, was that when, when Jack became, went from ADA to DA, was that sort of a a result of you wanting to, have stepped back slightly from the the level of involvement that you'd had.
1: Yeah, I think it was mutually agreeable. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, the guy who's carrying who's carrying the show now is Hugh Dancy, and uh, and he's doing a spectacular job. So one of the questions that I had when they came to me and asked me if I wanted to do this was, "Haven't I, haven't I done this already?" Should I really go, can you go home again, all that stuff? Well, (laughs) you know, I finally thought, how's it going to feel to be sitting on the sidelines watching this happen? And I thought that would be worse than anything that could happen (laughs) if I did it. So I did it. uh, And I'm thrilled. It, It turned out to be huge fun. And it turns out you can go home again.
0: Well, let's let's go back, though, to when Law and Order was last on the air 12 years ago. Uh, Why did it come to an end? And and how did you what were your feelings about it at that time? Was that uh, it's I I think it was sort of caught caught a lot of us by surprise. Right.
1: I think the principal person caught by surprise was Dick Wolf, because and and and, uh, I didn't speak to him by any means every day in the intervening 12 years, but I bet you, if you asked him at, on any day in those 12 years, he would have said that he thought it was a ridiculously bad mistake. Yeah, he, he always wanted it to come back. I think you were asking before why it's popular with people. It, the story structure is fantastically sound. You can, they don't vary it very much, and so it's easy to caricature, but it really is a satisfying story tr- structure. It's not easy to figure out how to do things like that, and so throwing it away, uh, I think Dick was right. It was it was an, it was a mistake, and I'm glad they I'm glad they came around and corrected it.
0: At the at the time when it went off in, in 2010, I think only Esposito Murkerson had been there associated with the show longer than you. I know you'd worked with. Uh, and and become close to a lot of these same people year after year after year for 16 years. I I think in particular from what I've read, Jerry Orbach. I guess just did you did you feel that it was was it was it hurtful to you the way it was handled in 2010?
1: No, you know, um, television shows don't run that long, uh, so you'd have to be really churlish and ungrateful to say, oh darn they. They cut me off after 16 short years. Uh, it was it was a lot. It was plenty. It was, and it was a good thing, for me to go and
0: do other things. I know you were pretty quickly onto other things, including the newsroom, which goes on the air or or not on the air on cable on uh, HBO, I believe, in 2012, just two years after Law and Order was off. Uh, just to remind folks, this was now a network news exec sort of. Uh, old school guy, bow tie wearing guy, um, and you are working on that show with Jeff Daniels, who I know you had a long history with, but doing Aaron Sorkin dialogue, which I I always, whenever I get the opportunity to ask somebody who's worked with him, what it's like to learn and to deliver that very kind of specific uh, dialogue, which I know there's no deviating from. I I, I like to ask that because. I'm very curious. Can you can you talk about that?
1: You know, it is. You're absolutely right. It's a challenge. And it, not only is it supposed to be the words as written, but it's also supposed to move right along. So uh, doing that week in, week out is definitely a challenge. And then the syntax is particular to Aaron Sorkin, and he cares about the syntax. It's chosen. So... That's a challenge too. And fortunately, somewhere along the line in the first season, Jeff Daniels said, you should use Rehearsal Pro. That's how I get through this. And I've been doing it ever since. It's, uh,
0: how does it work?
1: You record, uh, the, the app lets you record everybody else's lines and leave space for your own. And then you play that back to yourself endlessly, riding around in the car, on an airplane, whatever you're doing, at the beach, when you should be paying attention to other people, all, all <laughs> of stuff. And uh, it goes into your head, you know, much more easily. Sometimes it, it doesn't work, but mostly it does.
0: Well, how about another thing that you did, which I'm not sure, I don't think you would ever done before which was a sitcom format with grace and frankie uh starting in 2015 if anyone needs a reminder you're playing one of these two longtime friends who leave their wives and and get together themselves and this is now in its seventh and final season it's been a a a major show for netflix and with marta kaufman who had done friends and i guess i just wonder uh you know because we were so accustomed for so many years to seeing you in a procedural show or then in, or otherwise in drama series, um, you know, some people were surprised that to, to see you in a comedy series. What was that fun for you? Was that seeking a a new kind of challenge?
1: I'm very glad to, to have been given the opportunity to surprise people with that. When I first started out, I, I did a lot of comedy when I, The first play that I did in New York, I think I said already, was Dad Poorthead. Mom's hanging in your closet. I'm feeling so sad. And that was a comedy. And I was afraid of being typecast as a light comedian. Uh, (laughs) And I didn't think anybody would be willing to take me seriously. So I struggled and struggled and struggled to be taken seriously. And then, I don't know, I succeeded all too well. And then... (laughs) And then they came along and let me do this with those
0: people. With those people. Mm-hmm. With those amazing people. Martin Sheehan, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, on and on.
1: On and on. Marta and Howard steering the ship. And boy, it, it matters uh, on a TV show who's running things. And they they just, they were, they're were they beautiful people and uh, the whole show reflected that.
0: Absolutely. And uh, so, I mean, this kind of sets up what has been an uh, amazing, prolific year for, for you. We should note, so it was the seventh and final season of Grace and Frankie. Two of three things that w- we'll mention for this year is the dropout, this limited series in on which you're playing George Schultz, the former U.S. Secretary of State who was an investor and a board member of Theranos, which obviously became a a, a whole scandalous uh, enterprise under Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, I I guess anything you want to say about that one, which has really been so well received, you as Schultz, Amanda Seyfried as Holmes, and, and really just the whole thing overall?
1: Well, first thing I should say is that Grace and Frankie let me off in the midst of shooting, or made space in the midst of shooting, for me to be able to do these two things at the same time. That's not just everybody who does that kind of accommodation. And then what can I say about doing it? It was was an extraordinary experience, A, a complete, talk about it, a complete change of pace from going one day from doing Grace and Frankie to the next day playing George Shultz. And then the tone of voice of that show, the writing of that show, such a high level, and then the company was so great. And I must say, I thought the whole, came, whole thing came together perfectly beautifully. Amanda is absolutely brilliant and it's one of those things where the show felt so confident about her performance that they could run clips of the actual person she was personifying and juxtaposed them immediately with her own work
0: and totally. it was
1: fine uh, she was it's just it's really uh an amazing incarnation, but up and down the line
0: so many good people totally and and just uh even though a lot of people know the broad outlines of the story, it's still a gripping limited series to to watch. Uh, you just can't stop after one episode or whatever. It's as with Grace and Frankie and, and stuff on Netflix, people just binge it. Um, but that brings us to number three of three, which is this uh, return of Law & Order after 12 years off the air. Um, so many people, myself included, were, were thrilled to hear that it was coming back and in particular that you were coming back. And I guess I wonder if you can share just, I, I know you said Dick, Never wanted it to go away in the first place, and, and always hoped it would come back. But um, how did it finally come to be that it was coming back? And when was there ever any doubt in your mind that you wanted to be part of it when it when it did come back?
1: Well, starting to ba- back into that question, I I did wonder whether it was a good idea to come back. I I did think I've been there and I've done that and all of that. But as I said before. The idea of sitting on the sidelines and watching it happen just didn't appeal at all. And then when I did come back and we were walking onto these sets that had been completely rebuilt from scratch down to the smallest detail, the the linoleum on the floor was the same and It was spooky. It was, it was, this is your life, Uh, you know, a network going to an enormous amount of trouble to let you revisit the past.
0: Um, And it's been great fun. So I'm very happy to have been there. Can, Can you remind folks how we left Jack 12 years ago and how we are picking him up in this revival? I mean, is where did it leave him and where did he come back?
1: They left him twelve years younger, doing the same job. <laughs> that you him doing when he came back twelve years later,
0: um, right? Right. It's comfort food, I guess. Right, because I guess with Law and Order, people aren't, you know, they're, they're not looking for massive changes from season to season, right? Obviously, the characters evolve in in different ways, but um, is that sort of the part of the appeal of it that you can put on any episode of? law and order, and it doesn't have to be in a specific order or anything, You'll, you're going you're gonna to be right there with Jack and whoever else because they are who they are?
1: I think the fact that all these people are established in the public mind, all these characters are established in the public mind, makes them trustworthy in a way that um, brand new characters might not be. And it gives them license because of their history with the audience, to talk about what has really changed, which is the whole world. Um, The characters are steady. The audience knows them. The the audience pretty well should know that they can take them at their word, that they mean what they say, and so on. But the issues, some of which were percolating, some of which were – well and truly surfaced, but are now really out there and they have a lot to do with policing and they have a lot to do with law enforcement in general and they have a lot to do with what's just and what's fair. And here's law and order, a a really ideal venue for talking about those things and no reason to pull its punches because you know us.
0: Exactly. And and this season, now that you guys are back for... I guess this would be the 21st season, is it, that that it's overall of the show, 2021, 22. Uh, And for you, number 17, um, I I think, uh, you know, you guys, as you say, are dealing with timely stuff, whether it's police brutality or Me Too related cases or, you know, just all kinds of stuff that is, while while there is kind of this connection to all the way back to the early nineties or whenever the show first went on the air, uh, late eighties, there is also a a timeliness to it. Yes. So I understand I could be wrong, but I understand that you still to this day, as as you said was the case, maybe at the beginning, you like to work on one year contracts. Now, Robert Morgenthau was the New York DA into his nineties. How much longer do you see yourself playing Jack? Are you interested in replicating that? I,
1: I revert to my former answer. Um, what am I going to do tomorrow? Um,
0: yeah, right, right. I guess that being said, do you, if, if it was left to you and not the writers to determine whenever the, the uh, end of Jack McCoy comes, how he exits the show, do you have any preferred uh, vehicle for how that would happen? It would be hard
1: to beat Charlie's exit from the newsroom.
0: Uh, can you can you remind folks?
1: Yeah, he's exercised about something, and he's walking and talking, striding through the newsroom, and he has a heart attack and dies. And uh, much to my delight, I had been sort of adopted as uh, the mascot by all these beautiful and talented people working in the newsroom. And when I... <laughs> When I had my heart attack, um, Aaron Sorkin came up to me and said, I I don't know if you want to look around. I said, I don't want to look around. He said, well, I I just thought you'd like to know they're all crying. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, okay, thank you very much. But then I had to have a heart attack. so I couldn't enjoy it, but I've been enjoying it ever since.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, in our in our last minute, I just hope we can do uh, a little bit of rapid fire. Just the first thing that comes to your mind. uh, If you are flipping through the channels and come upon an old Law & Order episode, as so many of us often do, what do you do?
1: Um, I I do whatever my wife does.
0: And very often (laughs) she watches. She does. Okay. Now, did you do you ever watch the Law & Order spinoffs?
1: No, because we have our pride, don't we? You know, we're more, <laughs> we can't really recognize these upstarts, even though the That's upstarts right. have outlived us now.
0: Yeah. SVU, I guess, is the longest ever at yeah. this point, right? Yeah. Uh, um, your Your kids are now in the business, doing very well. I wonder your thoughts on the fact that they they followed the uh, old man into the into the same profession.
1: Um, well, I tried to warn them. <laughs> but I'm delightful at how they do it. They're they are uniformly wonderfully talented, and show business has been kind to them and could be kinder. And um, mm-hmm. so while we've got everybody's attention, um, let me shine a light on how good they all
0: are. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I know uh, in in on my beat of covering the awards races of of the various media with uh the oscar race a few years ago your daughter Catherine was uh in the conversation with inherent vice and i know your other kids have 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 also done great stuff so uh anyway um let me ask you what you think when you hear the word retirement what is that word uh what kind of a reaction does that word get with you
1: Uh, you're not applying that word to me
0: are you well you know you interpret it how you wish is it is it a word that you uh you hear and are repelled by, or does it have an appeal?
1: You know, when they stop calling, I'll retire. hope <laughs> no They don't stop calling, but you know, I, I'm happy with whatever happens. I've had a, I've had a wonderful run, but I also love to work. So, you know, as long as people want me to work, I probably will do it.
0: Yes. Well, that's good news. And then finally, uh, I have to ask you, uh, I am sure cannot go out to dinner or, or anywhere without hearing something from law and order fans who, who want to, you know, impress upon you, their, their level of fandom. And I wonder what is the quote, the noise, the, or the sound, I should say, just anything that you hear most frequently from your, from the law and order faithful. Hey, law and order.
1: That's, <laughs> the one I, that's when you're walking down the street. <laughs>
0: Not, not the dum dum.
1: Well, you know, dum dum is is often heard too. But you know, I, I always felt like New York Law and Order was, you know, New York's show. So when you're walking down the street in New York and somebody shouts Law and Order, you, you feel like you're at home. That's
0: nice. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it, and and thank you for I don't know how many hours, countless hours of. Uh, of entertainment. Uh, really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. I'm a very lucky, man. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks very much for tuning into awards chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Okay, round two. Name something that's
1: not boring.
0: A laundry? Oh, a book club.
1: Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, <sighs> oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No prohibited by law, 18 plus terms
1: and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty